Hi, everybody. Welcome to TYT Interviews. I'm very excited about today's guest and the book we're going to be talking about. Our guest today is uh, Kelly Carden. She, Carlin. <laughs> Kelly Carlin. Carden. Kelly Carden. There she is. Kelly Carden. Hi, Kelly. Hi. Thanks for being our, my guest. Thanks for writing this book. Let me just tell people a little bit about you before we get started. She's a writer, radio host, podcaster, producer. She's an overall delight. Oh, my God. Uh, she is, she's here with her uh, book, A Carlin Home Companion, Growing Up with George, which I saw the one-person show about it, and I read the book, loved both of them. The book was amazing. Uh, welcome to TYT Interviews. Thank Thanks you. I'm very honored and happy to be here. I feel so official on this official set here. Yes, this is a real, we're the real deal now. Damn it, really we're happening. doing it real here now. So now... Tell me this. I would like to I have so many questions. I want to get right to it. Right. Okay. Okay. So now tell me the story about how this book even came about. How did you find your editor and your publisher? They found me. You're kidding. Uh, It was pretty cool. Uh, Well, let me tell you, though, I had been telling some stories around L.A. for years. In 2006, I put together an outline and wrote a few chapters and Told my dad I was thinking about it, and he gave me that look like, and I put it on the shelf. <laughs> Tell the story in the book about that, how it was a little difficult for him when I talked about personal stuff in public. Uh, and then dad died, and in about 2011, went and pitched it to Simon Schuster because they had just published my dad's memoir posthumously, and so we'd worked with them. and. Unfortunately, the imprint that I pitched it to disappeared in 10 days. And the thing was, they didn't call us to say, hey, we're out of business. They just didn't call me. So I'm thinking, I'm a piece of shit. They don't like me, whatever it is. Uh, And then in 2013, I got an email out of the blue from a lit agent saying, hey, um, heard about you on a podcast telling your stories. Um, Do you have a lit agent? Do you have a book deal? And I said, no, I don't. Here's my proposal that I sent to Simon & Schuster two years ago. And he was like, wow, this is amazing. Uh, You've got a book here, definitely. And I've actually got someone kind of interested already. So that's all I knew. Backstory was this editor at St. Martin's Press is the one who heard me on a podcast, heard me tell some stories, said to his assistant, you should find out, does she have a lit agent? Does she have a deal? And you should edit this book. So he handed the book to his assistant, who'd been doing mostly like mysteries and kind of like, uh, you know, kind of smaller stuff. Um, St. Martin's Press is part of a huge, obviously Mm -hmm. huge publishing thing. And about six weeks later, I had a book deal. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was incredible. I'm not one of those people that like can tell like I sent it out to 25 places or whatever. I mean, and of course, with my dad's name attached, it's going to be a little easier for me to get in the door. But um, as I know, growing up in this way and, you know, just from experience, you can get in the door, but if you don't have the goods, who fucking cares, you know? So they felt I had the goods, and it's it was an incredible experience. The editor was fantastic. Hannah Broughton is her name. And I want her to follow me around the rest of my life as I write things. Oh, you enjoyed your editor and <laughs> incredible your experience. Collaboration was yes. fantastic. That's great. Yeah, it was really great. Yeah. So the thing now, this isn't a history of George Carlin. This no. is a history of your experience and, growing up with a famous comedian father. And why people assume it's a history of my father? Right. I don't know why. Okay. <laughs> right. It says growing up with George. That right. would be the me part. So this that's why it was really f- fascinating. The, 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 first of all, you have memories from when you're not even three years old. Well, I have stories told to me oh, about that, that time. That's what it was. Oh, is that because I'm like, how the hell no. did you? Okay. When you write this stuff, you base it on, you know, what you know about your life. Okay. And, I mean, you can't remember I can't remember dialogue from back then, but you you make the truth okay. of a situation happen, absolutely. Okay. And my parents told me plenty of stories about those times. What, which one were in particular were you thinking about? All, well, first of all, the story of the your mom's eyebrows being burned off. Uh, I mean, I have a memory of that experience. You do? But mom and dad used to tell that story, so... Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. And yeah. you do have a memory of and it. I, yeah, I mean, I do have a panicked memory of my mother crying hysterically into the phone and 
something had happened with the oven. Um, and then my, you know, my parents told me these stories. And then I say, you know, in the book, you know, I don't remember the dialogue, but I'm sure it went something like this because right, that's okay. how this dialogue went back then, you know, and, and this was the nature of their relationship back then. So, so it was, you know, because I so saw, I've been a comedian all my life now going on. So I moved out 25 years, 20, 25 years, and I, n- I never had a family. I never had children. And so I was, it was really interesting to get the perspective of someone who was the child yeah. of a comedian who worked, you know, of course, George worked the road all the time. I never thought about it. I never thought about that he was an absent father, right, and that your mother. So it's such a rich history of how everything came together, mm-hmm. his mother, and the, the whole thing is so fascinating. But your perspective of it is what's really fascinating to me, right? So now, growing up, your father was ultimately, like, uh, in my head, would be the coolest dad, right? Everybody's like, oh, it had to be amazing, right? You have yeah. such a cool dad. But so he was on the road a lot of the time. He Your was. mother was uh, not fulfilled being a mother, yeah, right? As yeah. many women are. Yeah. And then you're here. So then you kind of, how was that being alone? Did you feel unloved, loved? How did it feel as a... Um. Well, but dad would come home and it would be like, you know, circus time. You know, he'd bring presents and it would be fun. Um. I, I don't know if it, I certainly was never unloved. I never had that feeling. I mean, I think the love in our family was the thing that really, you know, kept all of us sane ultimately and kept our family together ultimately. But, um, but yeah, when your dad's gone a lot, you know, I mean, that, the other thing too is we all grew up in families and it's just kind of, you know, the air we breathe. We don't really learn to compare it until much later yes. what it looked like. So. So dad wasn't around. So mom was there. Um, you know, dad would, you know, come home. He'd have presents and things like that. And mom and him would argue because he was gone so much. <laughs> but what is he going to do? He has to do to work. You know, it was one of those things. So, um, no, I, I always felt loved. Um, but uh, I w- w- wished he was home more, sh- for sure. You know, a little kid wants her dad, you know, to be home. Yeah, yeah I'm sure. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, we'll get into it about, you know, having a famous dad. Uh, like uh, you do, uh, how that, you know, the problems that come with that, yes. right? especially in finding yourself yes. and things like that. But let's talk more about, um, so they, w- people are pretty aware that uh, of the substance uh, abuse, right, that happened with the, yeah. your dad. He, he talked openly he about He talked it. about smoking pot and doing coke and things like that yep. and drinking Dropping wine. Dropping some acid. Dropping an acid, which is a... <laughs> How did he put it? It's an attitude changer? Yeah, value changer. Value changer. Yeah, value changer. Yeah. Certainly is. Pot is the same way. But yep. anyway, um, so you had to manage the, your mother drank a lot. My mother was a full-fledged alcoholic, mm-hmm. and that was probably happening before I was even born. I mean, she was, uh, you know, I tell the story of how my mom got pregnant with me, and, you know, they were in New Orleans partying, and yes. she was really tipsy, and they did the limbo, and suddenly she was pregnant, you know, and I'm like, I still don't understand the physics of that, but I guess it works. <laughs> um, but, yeah, mom was for sure an alcoholic, and that was, you know, troubling for dad even early on, because when she drank, the personality changed, and she became like an exhibitionist and loud, and then as she was coming down, she became angry and bitter. Uh, and you know, your mom had a creative streak. Yeah, she was. My mother was um, an incredible pianist, uh, valedictorian of her high school class. She was very bright, very talented. Growing up in Dayton, Ohio, and ended up getting knocked up by the boy next door, having to marry him. The whole thing ended up having a miscarriage. The whole thing was a sham. You know, stuck in this dead end marriage, and then. But she wanted to get the f out of Dayton. She did. She did. She was ambitious. She wanted to do something with her life. She knew she didn't belong there. She always felt like one of those people that says, "I feel like an alien in my own family." You know. I think and, a lot of people can relate yeah, to that. And I think a lot of people during that time, also, uh, you know, teenagers in the fifties, leaving the Midwest for something more exciting was, you know, big back mm-hmm. then. You yeah. know. And so when she met my dad, they just clicked, and it was, you know, easy for her to go, yes, let, let's get out of here. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so they did. Um, but, but she was. She was a drinker, and as the years went on, that got more and more serious, and she became more and more less herself and, uh, and, and more like this other kind of personality that was very hard to be around and very scary to be around and a fall down drunk, one of those kind of people. 
And then, you know, dad was partying too, uh, especially, you know, like in the early 70s once the big change happened and dad went from straight to counterculture guy. A lot of drugs came into the household, a lot of cocaine, a lot of pills. It was the 70s. Everyone was doing everything. And both of them were doing a lot of coke and mom was drinking a lot. And and it created a lot of tension and chaos in our house, you know, a lot of arguing. So as a child of, uh, you know, uh, of alcoholic and of a substance abuser, you tried to keep everything together. Yeah, I was an only child and it was it was survival time. You know, let's make sure these people get along because they need to stay together because I need to eat. <laughs> yes. And everyone wants mom and dad to stay together, you know. So you became the peacemaker. I was the diplomat, the You were the caretaker. I was the caretaker. I was the grown-up at times. I was the alcohol hider. I was the cocaine finder, you know. I mean, I tell a story of one night uh, my parents are arguing outside my bedroom door, and I finally come out, and it's like, okay, what are we solving now? Like, what's going on now? And my dad, they had a habit of uh, hiding their cocaine stashes from each other because, you know, cocaine is the greediest drug on planet Earth. You you have cocaine. You don't want to share it. It's all about keeping enough of it for yourself for 12 hours down the line. So they had their own stashes. Dad would hid his from mom. Mom had run out of hers, I guess, and, of course, Dad had forgotten where he had hid his from Mom, and so he hid it from himself, basically. Mm-hmm. So, they're, so they're, you know, whatever, you know, accusing each other of stealing each other's Coke or whatever. I come out, it's 3 a.m., and they're dealing with this huge bookshelf. There's hundreds of books, and um, they're, and I'm like, all right, so we're going to go, we're going to find the Coke, and, the, you know, it was like, okay. your dad had put it in a put book. Put it in a book. He hid it in a book. And, and the book was? Well, it ended up being uh, Ram Dass's Be Here Now, Be Here which now. you would think he would remember that. <laughs> That's just so funny that he's putting Coke in a book yes. about spirituality, about being here now. And it was probably that, the Tuesday stash, hiding place. You know, God knows where he put it the day before, you know, it was probably a Leon or whatever his name was. So, <laughs> it, it's, and also it's the synchronicity with you telling that story in the book because that was the last book I read, Be Here Now, right? So I'm like, get the F out of here. How could this be happening? It's it's all about the synchronicities. Yes, yes, and, right? And yes. I know that you're into Jung, right? We'll yes. talk about that. Yes. But let's let's start at the, where we are. So you, so there you are, classic, keeping your uh, uh, substance-abusing parents. Textbook codependent girl. Textbook, right? Yes, completely. In in the making. (laughs) Yes. Right. And our family, very enmeshed, very into denial and, you know, typical addict, alcoholic behavior. Let's all, you know, and dad and I were always trying to, you know, figure out how to keep mom in real, out of real trouble because, you know, when you're a drunk, it's getting in your car is not a good thing. So, you know, we're hiding keys and we're trying to manipulate the situation and she feels ganged up on because we're doing that and she... She was kind of right about it, but we were trying to save her life. And, you know, it, it, it was it was hard. It was eggshell walking is, is the yes. least of it. But it's that feeling for sure. So, yeah. So then you grow up always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, I, I can really relate to all that stuff uh, in the book. Some, but you your mom did get sober. She did. And how old were you when that happened? I was 12. Yeah. So all this stuff happens and then it's like you lived two lives by the time you were 12 years old. Yes, absolutely. It seemed like, like wow, there's a lot going on in her life. Yeah. And then you go, oh, I was 12. She got so I'm like, 12? Oh, yeah. my God. This is all this stuff that's happening. Yeah. So uh, you want to tell just about how you finally, she got sober? Because that was kind of. Well, yeah. She, I mean, it had gotten to the point where she was dying, dying of alcoholism. And she was Coke and Valium. And she could barely walk. She could barely eat. Or get out of bed. It was, you know, my dad would be on the road and I'd have to call down the hill and order her cases of wine for her. I mean, it was just a horrific situation. And she, she'd she been in the hospital a few times with what they called, what they told me was malnutrition. <laughs> That's what they'll tell Kelly. Uh, like, I didn't know what was going on, but I bought it. Oh, okay, yeah, mom needs to go to the hospital for that. And... Um, but the doctors, you know, said to us, she's going, she will die. She will absolutely die. Her, her liver will shut down. Her body will start to shut down. 
And my dad and I, we just, uh, it took a few weeks, but we just really worked on her and begged her and begged her and begged her. And she finally agreed to go. And this was before Betty Ford. And this was when there was, uh, they had something called a chemical dependency center at St. John's in Santa Monica, but it was pretty much part of the mental ward there. And um, she went, but she was convinced she was going there to die. She didn't believe she would ever leave. And she made it through the first week, which was really important because uh, they were afraid of her having seizures and all sorts of things yeah. that you can have coming off of all that drug, and Valium especially. It's got a half-life. It's very bad for you. And she made it through. She made it through the whole four weeks. And she came out, as I say, like the queen of AA. I mean, she was going to probably two or three meetings a day. She had a great sponsor. Before you knew it, she was downtown pulling drunks out of Skid Row and pulling them into meetings. And, you know, she found a purpose bigger than herself, you know, which was helping other people with her, what they, you know, call experience, strength and hope, which is a line I've been using a lot about talking about this book because I can relate to it. Um, but she did. She she found purpose in her miraculous recovery. I mean, it really was. You know, they, they say in AA, stick around for the miracle. And she did. And... Um, she became the person that she always was, you know, um, and that was that was an amazing, fantastic. So thing. she, I'm sure that your mother, I uh, picked up through, like she felt she didn't really. So she had you, which is uh, great, right? People yeah. love have, but it wasn't. She wasn't fulfilled as a person. Yeah, right. She and had so more to give to the world. She had more, and but she didn't know how to do it. And her husband. So now she's. Her and, husband's absent all the time and, on the road. And, well, and when I was young, Dad would not let her work. I mean, and he wouldn't let her. do I mean, things. people are shocked she by got, that. And she could even became a pilot, and he wouldn't let her become a because pilot. Because she was also a drinker. Because she was also drinking. <laughs> he was a smart man. Yeah. So there's so many fascinating things. And my, meanwhile, your dad's doing coke and smoking pot all the time, and he's trying to manage your mom's alcoholism yes. too. And then he's trying to do it from the road. And when he leaves, you take over. Yeah. And so that forms your personality. Yeah. And but you learn at a young age that you can make your dad laugh. Yeah. I mean, it's it's one of those things, I guess, in any family, we kind of all do the humor thing. We all have the humor thing in our families. We all have our own sense of humor in each family. And yeah, I could, you know, I could do uh, characters. We watched a lot of Carol Burnett back in those days. A lot of Carol days. Burnett, right? Now, that was fascinating to yeah. find out that your dad loved Carol Burnett. Oh, yeah, Tim All, Conway. Most, and, oh, he loved to watch Tim Conway, Conway try to break oh, up Harvey Corman. Oh, my God, yes. And your first impression was Mama. Was Mama, yeah. There was a scene where they were playing Parcheesi or something, and I, like, memorized the scene or something and and would do uh, <laughs> do Mama for Dad. And uh, and do other I did Lily Tomlin's characters from Laughing and you would crack your dad up oh for sure yeah absolutely every time when you would do Mama yeah would, yeah he loved he amazing lo- right? yeah well you know I, he, he was and you know what my dad was an easy laugh he was not a stingy laugh that's great yeah that's great you I read about comedians who are heroes of mine and uh, they seem to be sticks in the mud off stage yeah and I can't stand those people yeah. And uh, it's, 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 you know, it's the whole thing about you don't want to meet your heroes because they're always going to let you down. Ah, uh, it's good for you. And I, <laughs> it makes you grow up. <laughs> and you're probably right. It uh, does. You're probably right. And uh, so, yeah, when I, uh, when I hear about comedians who say things like, oh, are you always on? Yes, <laughs> I'm always on. I'm always going to try to be funny and interesting and clever. You caught me. I'm always going to try to be entertaining when I'm talking. Yeah. I, so that's the kind of, so I, so that's good to hear that he was an easy he laugh. Was. Those are the comedians we like. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, All right. I that's agreed. great. So okay. now let's move on. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now you were always a good student. I was a good student. So there's the My whole thing. My mom was valedictorian of her class. She was a good student. My dad was really, really smart, uh, but, you know, completely bored by school. But he was, you know, this brilliant kid. So yeah, I had it in me. To be a good student, but you, it, I kind of sense that you, and you kind of found a, like you were having a hard time finding out who you were and and becoming like the smartest kid in class. That was my identity completely. Yeah, yeah, being the good girl and the smartest, the smartest girl. I went to a very small private school, Santa Monica Montessori, and uh, Mrs. Dresser, the principal, would come through with new parents, you know, touring the school, and she'd say, "Kelly, come here, come here." This this is our this is our number one student here, you know, and I would just be like, oh yes, thank yeah. you. 
And how ironic <laughs> that here you are filling this kind of traditional mainstream goody two shoes role yeah. of being the great student, and your dad is a counterculture re- re- rebel. Yeah, but my dad would go to teachers' conferences, and he would love hearing how smart I of was and how brilliant he, you know, his daughter was. So of you know, it's, it's funny because you know, even though he was a man who uh, didn't survive any institution he was ever a part of. Uh, he was always proud of me when I achieved something in all of those institutions. You know, there was a little part of him that missed out on that yeah, experience. So val- he got to live through me a little bit through that. Yes. Yeah. He got like that kind of validation. Yeah. Oh, here's my smart kid. Yeah, for that, sure. Right? Yeah. We have it in us, the yeah. Collins. Yeah, exactly. So uh, you get, you went on the road as a family? Yeah, yeah, we did. I mean, as a little, little baby, yes. I went on the road. Uh, they put me in the back of the Dodge Dart. And then uh, school years, obviously, I wasn't on the road. But, uh, yeah, we would, we would get a chance to, during the summers to go on the road and, uh, and be with Dad. I didn't even know there was a road back. That's the whole thing. Reading the book, I'm like, there was a road? Like, I always thought the road started somewhere around 1984 or 85 when comedy clubs used to be comedians never performed in a comedy club. It right. was always another club. Right. So there was, right, there were dinner, they were dinner, par- they were dinner clubs right. is what they were in the 60s. Right. And then the 70s, for dad, it was um, theaters yeah. and, co- and colleges. Yeah. You know, and actually the college scene was a big part of it mm-hmm. for him, unlike today where, you know, comics don't c- come up in colleges at all. And right. Comics have issues with colleges today. Yes. There's uh, lots of problems. Yes, there is lots of problems. But yeah, the colleges were a really important place for dad, especially those first few years in the counterculture where he could, um, you know, go and and try this material. And these were the ki- these were the kids that were listening to his albums. Yes. So you, you know? make the point in the book that he was at night at these supper clubs entertaining his real the fans, parents. The parents of his fans. Yeah, and that's when he realized, I mean, that was before the change, when he yeah. realized he was hanging out with the parents of the people that he actually hangs out with. And, you know, he was interesting for him, and he, he talks about this in his memoir and a lot of interviews, that he was right in between these two generations. He was 30 in 1967. So he was, you know, over that age yeah. where you weren't supposed you to trust, trust anyone. right? 30. And yet he was aligned with those 20-somethings back then, and he was definitely had, you know, and this was really the split between those people that – came up in the early 50s, you know, mm-hmm. and all. So, so yeah, it was he was in an interesting place. And that's why I think he could comment so interestingly on the generations because he was kind of an outsider to both. It's hel- helpful to be an outsider. It's I think it's essential as a comic. Yes. I think, you know, I mean, I think that's that's the first criteria of being a comic is feeling like an outsider. Yes, yes. I mean, even even here at the Young Turks where we do news and, uh, you know, I was at this convention Politicon and you see all the people we make fun of here and there and I'm like, and then I see some of my friends like chumming up with them and going to dinner with the Republicans and I'm like, you know what? I don't want to be friends with these people. <laughs> yeah. I want to, I don't I want like enough them. distance. Yeah. I, they might, I'm, everybody's nice over a cocktail. Right, right, yeah, for sure. And hey, if Hitler said he liked my comedy, <laughs> I'd be, hey, there's another side of that guy. People don't know. So you don't want to get, that's the whole thing about you can't fraternize. Yeah. Right. In, in war, you don't fraternize with the enemy because once the guy shows you a picture of his kids, you can't kill him. You can't shoot him. So once I sit down and have dinner with Michael Steele, I can't make fun of him anymore. Right. Right. <laughs> so that is very true. So I try to keep my distance from those people. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you got to meet a lot of really famous people uh, through your whole life. Right. Uh, you talk about you were uh, with Steve and Edie. Right. Oh. Edie Gourmet <laughs> and Steve. And I, when in I was Hawaii. Like, like, yeah. You've been so you've been surrounded by super famous like. So, but not. So, I mean, like those stories in there, the ones I put in there, mm-hmm. they're pretty few and far between. You know, I don't people, know. These the people Leaf were Garrett not, stuff yeah, okay. and Farrah Fawcett. So one, you're having sex with Lee so Garrett. One, yeah, and then I mean, one he was on the ta- every magazine. Well, I went to I went to high school with yes, that's Hollywood. what I'm saying. But my dad didn't hang out with Stephen Edie Gourmet at our no, house no, no, or no, anything no, no, like no, that. No, but you were wherever you went. So, so my the reason why I bring that up is because a guy like me. You get to go as far in show business as you can think you can go. Right. And so, you know, me growing up, though, it was always like I always had to get knocked in the head to, you can do this. Right. You can think bigger. Right. You can go, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, But you didn't have to get that. You were, it was all around you, right? So. Didn't seem to help me, though. Didn't have, didn't, well, didn't, that, didn't fill me with a sense of possibility. <laughs> that's well, because it brings its own problems it does. with it. It brings which, complications. Which, right, which I want to get to. Right. So but we will. So your mom quits drinking. Yep. 
everything gets a lot, lot better at home. Mm-hmm. Right? And for sure. For sure. Now, you still have all this residual anger towards your mother. Yeah, and all that, yeah, all the chaos that had happened. So, so all no, the you're used anxiety, to depression. Yes, I'm used to chaos. So everything calms down at home. It's much lovelier. No one's and, arguing. No one's trying to kill each other. No one's having to get mom off the lawn. And, and yet, and so you, so do you co-create a little drama? I, I go, I go find the drama. It's because when you find someone who isn't creating chaos, it doesn't feel right to you. Boring. So that's like a classic, <laughs> it right? Is, it is. I am a textbook, like I said. Right. Textbook codependent. You know, they talk about people like me who, you know, you walk into a room of five hundred people. And you will be completely sexually attracted to the most fucked up human in that room. You know, I mean, that's what happens if you don't work yes. on your shit, you so know. I've heard it described as, you know, it's because it's like you speak the same language. If you were in a party in Russia and one other person spoke English, you would find that person. <laughs> yes, yes. Right? So you find this person yes. who's dysfunctional in the same way you are. Right. You grew up, adult. So, you're an adult child of an alcoholic. And I'm going to go rescue this person you know, and and rescue them, and and the and the gentlemen I was always attracted to were really smart, funny, and good looking. Hmm. Ha! <laughs> Those are not the best guys. Daddy issues. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I go looking for chaos. Except your dad, from what I gather, was always a really pretty. You know, I mean, he had his drug problems, and your mother and father they had those kind of problems, but he seemed to always be good father. Right when I, he was home, yeah, yeah. I like, mean, but he was really an absent father. He really was. He yeah. was not home a lot. And when he was home, he was pretty focused on himself and his and his career. Um, he would put his head up every once in a while and go, "Oh yeah, I need to do this thing." And uh, I remember being around twelve when when mom, right before mom got sober, actually, and dad clearly knew I needed some quality time, and so he bought a baseball and a mitt to teach me. <laughs> How to catch and hit a ball, which is just the most heartwarming thing ever. But it's like, um, but he was the one who got me into horseback riding. He was like, you know, we went to this thing. And he's like, yes. you should do that. I'm like, yes. You know, so he's, he always supported me. He was unconditional with his love completely. And, um, and was always finding ways to make sure that I was okay. Uh, but a lot of that came through, you know, what can I buy you? What can I give you? Kind of, kind of daddying. Um, and uh, because he didn't, he didn't have a, you know, he didn't have a dad of his own. He didn't know how to be a dad. He had no role model for that. So he was flying blind in, in a lot of this too. But, um, but I knew that he loved me. I knew that, you know, but I always craved more time with him for sure. So you then went on to make, uh, you married someone, you got involved with someone older. <laughs> Who was also uh, an abuser. I mean, as far as a, substance abuse. A, cha- a chaotic, uh, I mean, chaos personified yes. is this guy. Absolutely. Yeah. And the whole time I'm like, what the fuck? Why don't you leave us? Why aren't you guy? leaving what him? What the fuck? And then you go, well, that was it. I'm splitting two. I'm leaving him. And then you're fucking still with this guy. I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah. But that's how it works, right? It is, yeah. And so tell me about, so you're with this guy. He was exciting in a lot of ways. Very different than what I had been around. He was a mechanic right he, he in was Brentwood. A car mechanic in Brentwood. He, he had grown up in Brentwood, but he had always felt like an outsider himself, as had I growing up. As that situation so i related to that he too had felt emotionally abandoned by his family as had i when i was just kind of getting in touch with those feelings at that time so we really related to that he had really good cocaine so we related to everything we said to each other because that's the nature of the drug i did not so that's another thing too like i've been in comedy my whole life and i never did coke right so you're so lucky I don't know what that's like or what it's about, but yeah. hearing you tell the story mm-hmm. about you and this guy doing coke for three days in a row, yeah. and I'm like, holy shit, people really do that stuff. And you yep. were doing it in your house, in yeah. your parents' house in with my- this guy. <laughs> so you're doing it in your bedroom for three days straight. Nobody notices because... Uh, yeah, and I'm, guess- I'm guessing people did notice. They weren't completely oblivious, but they but were... part of the ignoring, were... the alcoholic yeah, family, ignore, ignore. You know, and my mom didn't want to, you know, my mom didn't want me to run away or anything with this guy, probably. And I always, I always think back, if my parents had come to me and said, okay, look, um, you either get your car and your allowance... Or you go with this guy, but you or, and, and and you get you know a place to live, car and allowance. You know, you either get a little job or go back to college or whatever. Or this guy, I think I might have chosen the guy for a few months, but I, pro- I'm guessing I would have come back. I'm hoping, 
But I don't know. That's not the way it went. So, um, so you growing up, right? The way you did such a chaotic life. Wow. It again. It in my. I would not have imagined it was that chaotic. I knew that your dad did coke and all the stuff, and I can imagine it's a nightclub performer. But I, I guess I romanticize it, of course, right? Yeah. I just thought that would be the greatest well, thing. Well, and, he, and here's the other deal. My dad talked very little about this stuff. I mean, he did one Playboy interview, I think it was like 1980, 81, somewhere around there, where he talked about his drug uh, abuse. He did a couple, of, he said a couple of other things. He did write about it in the memoir, but he didn't publish it while he was alive. We posthumously published it. So this was a part of his life that was very hard for him to talk about. He had a lot of guilt and regret about and had said publicly that his biggest regret and only regret of his whole life really was the damage that was done during this time and that he let it go on for so long. And But, you know, he, you know, it was a time when, you know, there was n- no discussion of sobriety, right, nothing right. like that. I mean, and he, he really didn't know what to do with my mom. My mother was a handful and... He was enjoying himself, too, you know, although he talked about how, you know, especially with cocaine, how it's the kind of situation where at first it's 90 percent pleasure and 10 percent discomfort. And then that percentage changes to a point where it's 10 percent pleasure and 90 percent, you know, difficult. And um, and, you know, he was thankful, I think, when my mother went in to get sober, that it made him he didn't get like sober, sober right right away. But it made him, it gave him some boundaries finally for him to find his way away, away from it. And he, and he did on his own. Right. You know. So now you started to have, uh, you had panic disorder. Yeah. Uh, which I think a lot of people can relate to also. Right. Yeah. And uh, you didn't know where it was coming from. And, uh, and I'd had anxiety my whole life. Of course. Like, so I didn't really know like the separation anxiety stuff. Like I didn't see it as a continuum. But now looking back on it, I really see like. Oh, at four, when I wouldn't leave the teacher's lap for the first two weeks of school, major separation anxiety. Hmm, hardwired for this stuff, you know. But once again, people aren't talking about this. You know, there's no internet. There's no nothing. We're not discussing all of our psychological issues back then. We don't even know what separation anxiety was. Right. We're all pretending that we don't have psychological issues back then. We're all pretending we're perfectly sane in public. Yeah. And all the insanity is at home. Your mom was having panic attacks, and they told her she was having an identity yes, crisis. Yes, exactly, and gave her pill, gave her value, <laughs> gave her value. which go. ended up, you know... Creating more problems. Uh, of course, yeah. Yeah, so I did. I had panic attack disorder in my 20s really, really horribly, and it, that just escalated. And the cocaine was definitely a part of that because I think coming off of coke, uh, when you're coming down, your heart rate and all the paranoid mm-hmm. thoughts and everything, and it just fed into it for me. And then it started happening in certain places, especially in my car and what happens with the disorder is uh, you start associating it with where you are and what you're doing because yes. your, your mind thinks, oh, that's how we're going to solve it. It has to do with the fact that I was next to a Ferris wheel. I just avoid Ferris wheels. <laughs> I'll just avoid Ferris wheels. I'll be fine. Never mind that I'm miserably married to this crazy man and inside the situation that feels like it's never going to change. And I'm you know, not growing as a human and I'm not doing the work in the world that I want to be doing. Never mind all of that. You... You referred to yourself as an addict whisperer? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, certainly as a child. I mean, I could walk into the house and, and read the room. Okay, mom's been, she slept, so she's, but she's having some coffee. Don't know what she's poured into the coffee. Dad, dad looks like he's slept too, and he's just rolled a joint, so he's going to be mellow for a while. So maybe there's some hope of some some mellowness here for a few hours, you know, but other times I'd walk in and, uh, oh, they, they're, they've they been awake all night, you know, oh, that'll be fun, uh, you know, and, and mom's pouring herself another glass of wine or scotch. So that, so you can, yeah, that's, um, you know, I had, so I come from a big chaotic family myself, so it was, you know, a lot of the things you were saying about how you could tell the mood of the house, yes. what it was going to be before you got in, and I was relating to all, like, yeah, it's all there's, Always a mood. And yes. you always have to decide what it is as soon as you get there. Yep. What is the mood now? And, right. And who does who do you stay away from? Who's okay to talk to? Mm-hmm. Should I just leave out go outside and play? Should I just go in my room and play music? You know, it was always it was always that. So you grow up that way, chaotic life. Find it's, more chaos. It's, it's you don't know how to be normal. And so once normalcy presents itself, you quickly get rid of it and you create more chaos <laughs> yes. in your life. Okay. But you're, you know, you talk about 
famously, your father talks about Danny Kay, mm-hmm. the old-time movie actor who was a comedian, and your father got inspired when he saw him. When he saw Danny Kay in a movie, he was like, that's it, that's what I want to do. Yep. You also had a Danny Kay moment. Like, you had a couple of them. Do you remember them? you remember what your first one was? Well, when your dad was playing Carnegie Hall? Oh, well, oh, well that, yeah. I mean, that experience of um, having an experience of what it's like to be in the energy of an audience that is so alive and is chanting your father's name and that when he hits the stage, there's this roar of approval, just being in, you know, in the wings and having that experience, it's, it's, you know, it's like a godlike experience. You're filled with an energy and it's exciting and every hair on your body stands up and you become this part of this thing and, and you know that it's like, well, it's dad, of course, but you, you know, it's like whatever that part of your brain is that you know, wants to be at one with God, I think it's that same part. You know, I think fame taps into that big time. It's that thing that you put the person on the pedestal then, you know, and you worship them. You know, a lot of the same language and wiring Mm -hmm. goes into it. And so for me, that sense of like, oh, you know, I, I can, no matter what, as long as I'm near that, I'll be okay. You know, it'll it'll fill up the void inside of me, the parts that I don't like or don't understand or can't control, and I'll just have that near me, and that'll distract me from having to deal with all this stuff inside also, you know? And so growing up in, in L.A. and in Hollywood, that I, I went to, you know, a high school crossroads where a lot of kids of, uh, you know, producers and studio heads and actors and all sorts of things. So your, your the fav- favorite show your family used to watch was Carol Burnett. Your dad cracked up. You move out here. Your friend is who? Uh, yeah, in junior high, my friend became Carrie Hamilton, which was uh, Carol Burnett's oldest daughter. And That's right. Now that's got to be mind-blowing a little bit. Yeah, I, I mean... Or was it? How? What was that like, like I, to be daughter of this... I mean, yeah, I was, I mean, I was always starstruck by people. My dad was too, but you know, you're starstruck in some ways, but at the same time, it's like, well, this is my friend. And, and you start to realize that you have this kind of weird life. I mean, she and I would talk about, well, let's someday have a comedy show, like a variety show, you know, and, mm-hmm. and we have these dreams of this variety show. And, and of course, deep down inside, I didn't believe that I was in any way worthy or could ever do anything like that. But, but you're like, yeah, if she thinks so, we, we could do this, you know, that kind of a thing. And and you do, you just, but I don't know. I mean, these are just the kids I hung out with. I mean, you know, Raquel Welch's daughter went there too. She was older than all of us. And we were always like, oh, God, ah, you know, yeah, it was. So no, that's funny you say about that. You didn't, so there's the whole part of you trying to find out who you are, right? You grow up with this famous father. He's a counterculture guy. You're a great student. You become a addict whisperer, right? <laughs> then your mom's not an addict anymore. And so now you have to find out, you're, you have to find your place in the world. Yeah. And uh, the thing is, like, so I always thought if my parents would have encouraged me more, that I would have had more confidence. Yes. But here's your dad telling you, you can do whatever you want, Kelly. And that didn't make you feel as good as you thought it would feel, right? No. That was a little more confusing almost. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he... You know, I think part of, you know, it's, it's so complicated. There's so many layers to it. But, I mean, you know, part of it, too, is that um, there's the level of fame he has. And so a part of me was like, well, if thousands of people aren't chanting my name, then it's worth nothing. You know, and then there's another part where um, dad, you know, never sees me do anything. Piano recital, dance recital, anything like that, you know. So he's never there to see me do these things that I'm really excited about and proud of. So a part of you thinks, and well, then I'm not worth seeing because he's not worth, you know, not understanding. He can't cancel a week full of concerts just to come to your piano recital. Mm-hmm. But as a kid, you want to believe that and you want to know that. And so you kind of make, you know, you, you kind of make it fit how you think about yourself, which is that, well, I'm not worth it then on some level. And, yeah, I mean, and my dad would say, you know, oh, yeah, you know, he, I mean, he was always proud of me and stuff like that. But. He never said to me, you should be an actor or you should be a writer or anything like that. And I wanted, I, you know, I was lost. Yeah. I had no You wanted him to say that, I wanted anyone to say that to me. Right. You know, I wanted, you know, and I think that's partly why I was attracted to my first husband, Andrew, too, was because Andrew was like, 
I'm going to I'm going to uh, introduce you to all these casting directors I know, and you should be an actress, and you should do this, and you should do that. And I felt like, oh, a strong older man who's going to shape me and take me to where I want to, you know, what, where I want to go. Um, and of course, that wasn't the case no, at all. No. Uh, but that was my fantasy at the beginning of that relationship. And yeah, my dad never said he never mentored me and never did any of that. And because a he didn't want to. Uh, you know, he, he wasn't a, like a dad, dad, you know, and you need to be a lawyer. Like, you know, because his mother pressured him, did everything, all of that to him. You know, you need to be a businessman and you need yes. to be this and you need to be mm-hmm. a beery and not a Carlin because in her mind, a Carlin was a drunk asshole, you know, her ex-husband and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and you need to, you know, lift yourself up and be this other thing. And, and he just went, you know, fuck you. I'm not doing any of that. So he never, ever, ever wanted to tell me what to do. Yes. Um, which, and it, you know, didn't, which, you know, backfired in could, some way. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's like you need something to push back against or rebel against or something to find your own way, even if it's something doing what you don't want. And you yet, find that out, right? I have to tell you now, and even though I was a, a late bloomer and it's taken me a long time to find my feet and and to stand on the ground and to, to know who I am, I really do know who I am now because my dad never pushed me in any direction. I know this is my voice and what I want to talk about in the world and my perspective on things. And, you know, I take him into account, but he's just one voice of many people I take into account. So that's the gift of it in the long run, which I think he'd be so happy about because he'd be like, see, I told you, I told you you would figure it out because he always had complete faith in me. He felt I was an old soul. He felt I was the wisest person in the family. He called me a shaman of the family. You know, he knew I had this inner kind of GPS that would get me to where I was going to go eventually if I would just believe in myself a little bit more. And, you know, he tried in his own way, as my mom did, too, to say, you know, we believe in you, um, but I didn't believe it. So you got to believe in yourself. In so you you did, you know, um, a lot of things. Like you were on your father's sitcom, right? You did your first comedy scene on your father's sitcom, and uh, you got big laughs, even though you were uh, shitting your pants. <laughs> Practically, it. yes. And and, and your yeah. father gave you a nice compliment afterwards. He did. He, yeah, he came up to me and with a tear, with the tears in his eyes, and said, "You know, congratulations, kiddo. You just got your first professional laugh." And and for dad, you know, those little moments of life were really important to him. He was a really sentimental guy, and um, he would. You know, he wrote down every little moment like that in his own career. The memorabilia I have is because he kept everything and every little moment of his career and life like that. And so he would always put a little pin in something and say, you know, remember this moment. This is your first professional laugh, you know, which is a huge thing for an actor or a comic or anything like that. Um, whereas I was like, what the fuck am I doing here? I don't know what I'm doing, you know. And actually, that's when my panic attack started. So, you know, it was all a little bit too much for me. And so uh, that show got canceled. Yeah, it never became a show. It was just a pilot. Right. Oh, right. That. But that, yes. OK. And then your father, uh, he did have a show. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, on on TV on Fox on Fox right yeah the George and, but, Carlin show and then he thought it was going to be great yes. because it's going to get him off the road off the road because he was tired I mean this was in the early nineties and uh, you know he was heading towards sixty years old and he was tired of being on the road he'd yeah. been on the road a long time that, yeah Rose a young man game Kelly I'll yeah, tell you that right now thirty years he'd been on that road and um, sitting next to dickhead businessmen on flights right all that stuff. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, he was hoping, oh, good, I want to have to, you know, I'll get some money rolling in. I want to have to be on the road. I want to be on the airplanes. And um, But he's a perfectionist. He was a perfectionist. Yeah, and, and so now he wants this thing he's working on, this TV to show, be to perfect. be great. And, yeah. you got, and it turns out you got to put in 18-hour days you do, to make that happen. Especially if you're writing and acting. And so now he's homeless. Yeah. And at least mom's on the set. You know, mom can go hang mm-hmm. out on the set a little bit. So she can have some time with him. But the stress of it was really hard on him. Yeah. And he wasn't enjoying himself at all. It really wasn't. What he knows how to do best, which is, you know, put together uh, some thoughts and an idea and a thesis and go out and, and you know, sledgehammer a concept or an idea or a person. <laughs> so so let's leapfrog ahead a little bit. So you uh, then go into writing, right? Bob and I, my husband. You, so you meet my, your new husband. My lovely husband. You get rid of the st- old guy. 
the mechanic who's a little bit uh, abusive and too much. He pulled got, a gun on me at one pulled point. Pulled a gun on you yeah, at one point. Not a good sign. You stayed well, with him after that, which was nice. Yeah, and, well, uh, yeah, because now I'm afraid to leave him yes. physically. So you might you meet Bob. I meet Bob. He turns which a couple of months after you get rid of the old guy for for good, and it turns out fantastic. It does. It's and great. He's a we're great guy. We're still together. It's a yes, lovely. Yes, I thing. know him. He's a great guy. Twenty three years later. Yes, and he was, uh, uh, and so then you guys even uh, so you guys get into this Warner Brothers writing program. We well, we have a meeting to get into the Warner Brothers right. writing program, and I, being the Carlin that I am, uh, I, I love this story. <laughs> Because I almost did the exact it's same like, thing when I got to town. Go ahead. It's tell. such an opportunity. You know, here's this opportunity that everyone at this time was salivating to be a part of. It's, you know, the, the, it's the mid-90s. It's sitcom heaven. Sitcom. Mm-hmm. And uh, we get this meeting to go in, and we've kind of gone over the first hurdle. They like our spec script or whatever we'd written, and um, I'm in there. And, of course, I'm seeing, like, 10 years down the line where I'm, like, beyond all of this. Like, yeah, get me in and let me make some money, but... This art form is dying, and this art form's all about start, corporate America. I start shitting on the art form that they are going to bring me into, and I'm going to be—we are going to be trainees. Uh, we're going to be paid money to sit in a room to learn how to write from like the greatest writers in LA television. And you're telling them what, what you guys do. I don't really think. Yeah, is great. what you people do is really beneath me. <laughs> oh my god! And the look on Bob's face is like the fuck are you doing like i've just quit my camera job for this shit you know and and really to this day it is it is the one regret but i think back on it and i think how we we would have been in those rooms i would have been an an anxious ball of i don't know and bob would have been so pissed off by the egos after two months i think we would have looked at each other and thought let's get the fuck out of here probably right we probably did so i know we saved us but really 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 the arrogance of that moment you know, so. I, it had a very similar thing happen. <laughs> I did almost the exact chip got, on shoulder right I here. Moved, I moved to town. I, it's not about me, but I, it's the guy's head of casting at ABC saw me, called me in immediately. He's like, you're great. We're going to put you on. A, uh, you know, Drew Carey was big. And he's yes. like, oh, and, and, and I started saying something about how I didn't like the show. <laughs> and then this other show, I go, yeah, that's not good. Yeah, I go, but it, that'll really like TV. And, blah, 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 blah. and then right. only after I walked out the door, I was like, what the <laughs> fuck is wrong with me? And then I'm re- reading you, and I'm like, she's doing the same shit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you go in there, they're going to give you all this money, and you start shitting on what they do. Yeah. And, 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 yeah. Anyway, so you go back into academia. I do, yeah, yeah. I, well, so no, you're still trying to find... Well, what happened was my mother died right after that in 97. That was And tough. that completely changed my so life. So your mother has, from the drinking, her liver is uh, gets cancer, right? And so yeah. she dies. But your dad, it's at the same time your dad writes Brain Dropping. Yes. His first big his book. His first big book, yeah. And it's... so this is going to be... So he has always had money problems, ironically. Yes. And so he writes this book, and he knows this book could be really good for the family financially. Get him off the road a little bit. Get him off the road, but he's yeah. got to go promote it. Yeah. And it just happens to be when your mom gets diagnosed it, with cancer. Yeah, and, and that, and he's, he's got all these concerts lined up, and there's all these contracts. You, you know, I mean, yeah. yes, you can cancel, but it's going to be a huge, huge thing. And he's always trying to catch up with the IRS. And um, and nobody wanted to admit that your mom was as sick as she was. And no the one, doctors didn't want to admit it. Nobody wanted we to We were playing the denial game. I mean, I say it in there. It's as if we took a time machine. You know, back to 1974 again, and we're all pretending that my mom's not really dying. Yes. And we're all doing the best we can, and Dad's doing his thing. He, I'll go on the road, and I'll make money, and I'll stay home, I say, and take care of Mom. And Mom really is dying. And it's just this weird replication of all this stuff going on. And I didn't have it in me to look my dad in the eye and say... I can't do this by myself. You have to stay home. You know, so I'm trying to get the doctors to tell him, you know, that she's not going to make it. She, and they're like, no, she'll be okay. <laughs> and I'm like. And so your dad goes on the road to sell the book. And yeah, and she, well, yeah, and actually he was on the road doing some concerts. And, um, and, uh, and yeah. She, so when the time came. She, she, she died. She was, she, she, she basically died. While he was on the road, I yes, mean, we took her to the ER and she died. And I told the doctor there, "You've you've got to put every, keep her alive for for Dad to get here. He'll be here in six hours." You know, and it was as you, you know, know, it's very touching. It, you know, yeah, uh, that's another thing I wanted to say at the top. Like the way the book is written, it's really well written in a, a like a, like I don't notice it in a sense like it's just breezing by, mm-hmm. right? So it's just this really easy read, mm-hmm. and it's just compact and and. 
I don't get confused. I don't, Mm -hmm. it's not like I have to reread this so Mm -hmm. I can understand it. Like I understand it right away. And it's really, so I just want kudos, bravo for that. That was really, really well done. And the part about uh, your mom dying and your dad being on the road and uh, it was really emotional for me. Mm -hmm. Like I did not expect it. And it brought up all these feelings and things. And, you know, you talk about the last thing you said to your mother and you don't really realize it's going to be the last thing you say yeah. to her that she remembers you saying, and it yeah. was drink your orange juice. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I know. That was really, uh, anyway, that was... Uh, well, and I think, you know, I mean, the reason I really included a lot of that in it, and, and included a lot about my dad's death in it, too, is because I really think we are of the age, us people, who were, you know, a lot of people our age are dealing with kids and parents, elderly parents, you know, and... Our generation is starting to deal with this, and I, I've walked through it now twice, and so I really wanted to include it in the book in such a way that, obviously, it was huge events in my life, but at the same time, I think it's really important that we talk about death nowadays. I really do, because... I'd rather just ignore it until I die. <laughs> <laughs> that works, too. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it is. It's 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 why I lay it out there the way I do. Because, yeah, no, it was and really. I, and I trust that the reader's willing to walk through it with me. And it is tough, but uh, it is part of life. Yes, it's t- it's tough, but it's sweet, you know. So yeah. it's really worth so worthwhile to read that story. So fast forward from there. Right. So m- mom dies. I go. Oh, <laughs> uh, death is real. Mm-hmm. Uh, life is short. Who fucking knows what's going to happen? You could be hit by a bus tomorrow. And I had not really made the leap into what I felt was the art form I wanted to jump into, which was personal storytelling and and essay writing. And Spalding Gray and Karen Finley in the early 90s had really inspired me. And they had been circling me for quite a few years. And so I started writing down all my life stories and decided to do a solo show and... um, and wanted to write about my mother's death and this uh, spiritual awakening that had happened for me around her death and how it really had transformed me in a way that nothing else in my life had. It was such a powerful experience. But to, in order to really show that experience, I had to show where I had come from. And one of the things I talked about in the show was the early chaos with my parents. And so I sent the script off to my dad and, um, you know, knowing that, there were some things in it that we hadn't really discussed yet in person because we don't do that. Because you we, don't talk about that We don't that talk stuff. about those things in our family. Y- yes. And dad gets it. And I think he's probably, oh, oh my God. And, I'm sure he had forgotten a lot of things. And doesn't, you know, doesn't really quite call me back to say that I've read it. And, you know, and so I finally have to reach out again and say, have you read the script? It's oh, so painful to do. And it's so terrifying because... I worship the ground he stepped, you know, stands mm-hmm. on. And he's, you know, he's like, yeah, I've read it. And I got to tell you, you know, we need to talk at your therapist's office. And that's when it's like, oh, it's going to be that conversation. The conversation I've never wanted to have mm-hmm. my entire life with my dad, which is. And I'm sure he didn't want to have you. I'm not happy with you. No, and he didn't. That's why he's like, let's do it in the safety of the therapist's office. And we do. We have this big, huge conversation. I break down. I fall apart. Um, but my dad is incredible, you know, in the end. He really is. He, You know, he's like, look, I, I'm not going to ask you to change anything because you're an artist and I would never do that. But why couldn't we talk about all of this before you were going to go in front of a room full of strangers? And mainly it was about being so upset that, you know, I had to stay at home and take care of my mom when she was dying. You know, that was the part of it that really upset him. And, um... And what happened, though, after that in our relationship was it changed everything for us because we did start talking to each other. It was the thing that kind of broke it all open. And we didn't get perfect at it, but we kept trying and we kept approaching and we kept having breakfasts and talking and bringing up things and letting more and more of our full selves show up in front of each other instead of I have to be perfect in front of daddy and dad has to be, you know, this kind of dad that, you know, is busy and doesn't know how to be emotional and connected, um, and, and he got to be more connected with me. So, you know, we did our best with it. But it, it, in the end, it worked It worked yes, in, in it, our favor, I think, as a family. It's a very happy ending. You talk about your dad and the electron 
and uh, that, you know, kind of rung your bell, right, when he talks about... Yes. And so just tell people quickly about that and what it meant to you. About his spirituality? Yeah, when he talked about the electron and the... The big electron. Yeah, Yeah, which, um, strangely enough, was his his brother, uh, my Uncle Pat, is the one who came up with that term. Uh, And... But yeah, I mean, so um, my dad was always a seeker, um, and he dropped acid in the '60s. And like many people who did, he suddenly felt at one with the universe and, and had that experience. And obviously, uh, you, you see his material over the years, starting with Class Clown and ending with uh, "Religion is bad for you" or whatever the piece is. Religion is bullshit. I guess it is. And, you know, so there's this full range of who he is. And people see him as this uh, staunch atheist, uh, which he didn't like the term atheist. He felt it was way too dogmatic. He felt it was a group, again, trying to get other people to believe what they believe, which is to not believe anything. Uh, he, he felt he was more of an agnostic. But, you know, so he was a seeker. I was a seeker. My mother was a seeker also, so a family of seekers. And so, you know, he and I, every once in a while you know, had some conversations about this stuff. I was a practicing Buddhist. I got into Jungian psychology. And um, and he, yeah, he, he had this notion about, you know, I mean, the big electron, just all it is really is that we're all energy in the end. In the end, we're all just electrons. I mean, that's the truth of it for sure. And what does that mean for consciousness? Who knows? None of us know. I mean, we'll all know when we die, I guess, you know, and that's what we always talked about. But, um, but yeah, you know, he, he had a very personal sense of wonder about the mystery of it all. He loved the mystery more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, answers weren't interesting to him. That's why he didn't like the church. Uh, that's why he doesn't like any kind of dogma of any kind, because people have answers to, for things. Yes. But he loved the mystery of it all. He loved looking up into the sky and... S- recognizing how small we are and, you know, what a speck we are in this universe and how, you know, instead of that being a moment of despair, which you could think it could be intellectually, it's actually a moment of incredible um, wonder, you know, that there's, you, you suddenly become connected to everything when you realize we're all, it's all just specks in the end, you know, so here we are, I'm as, you know, I'm as, you know, as interesting as the sun and as that and this and there, you know, there is a oneness in all of this and he had told me once that in one of his acid trips, he, he had had this incredible understanding that if we are all one, then everything is us, you know. And he had this, like, insight where, you know, like, even a shoe in the gutter on a street, I, I am that and that is me. A tree is me. A tree, yeah. We, we were, and so, therefore, he said he knew after that to never be afraid of anything because he knew no matter what he was encountering – who or what he was encountering, he was only encountering himself in the end. That's heavy duty. Yeah. And that's wow. that's that's it. I mean, that is the enlightenment moment. I yeah. mean, that's the big thing. If you can walk around knowing that we are all each other, you know, that's Jesus. That's Gandhi. That's that stuff. That's, that's that glimpse you get. You know, of course, we can't all be that 100% of the time. But he had some of those glimpses, as I have had too. And and so, you know, and he always looked for me like, you know, because I was practicing Buddhism and stuff like that. He was be like, how's the how's the meditation? You know, he so desperately wanted me to teach him how to meditate and things like that. He was too busy, but which is ironic. Uh, but, uh, I know. But, yeah, but he, he had well, there's that a, wonder. There's a Buddhist saying, right, um, a busy man must meditate uh, one hour a day. Very busy man must meditate two hours. Yeah. So, anyway, that's uh, that's... So it's great to know there's so many things that we don't have time to get to in the book. You know, I went into the book thinking it was going to be, it thought it would be a history of George Carlin's career, but it was a, so, there's, it's in you, there. And why did you think that? I don't know. But there's, it's funny there. because about half the people I know think that. And I'm like, well, you can, get that, you can get that anywhere. Right. <laughs> so it's even better than I had hoped because it, it was so many things that I could relate to. Well, and that's and that's why I wrote it. I wrote it because um, even though my dad was this guy mm-hmm. and I had this unique experience of being the daughter of this guy, really very universal, very much an American family from that era. Yeah. Well, there's also the great, the, you know, there's the there's the juxtapositions of things. Your dad's a counterculture guy with long hair and a beard. You live in the Pacific fucking Palisades. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> and next to a bunch of right. Republicans. My dad's the truth teller on yes. stage. Nobody can speak the truth inside the house. How? Yes. All I those... mean, all these little themes it's and things like, yep. I had a lot of fun weaving all of that together and really recognizing how, that's how complicated we all are, though. We're that complicated. Well, I never thought about it because as a comedian, I always resented the, the parents I had in a sense because they always shit on my comedy and right. tried to kick it out of me and what do you think you are and that kind of a thing. Even when I was doing well, they were still like, oh. Mm. And uh, so that was always annoying to me. But you had the opposite problem where you felt a pressure. Your dad's this guy, so now I have to do something that's special, counterculture, that's socially relevant. Yeah. What am I supposed to fucking yeah. do? Like, and he's a perfectionist. So yes. his standards, yes. his internal standards are so high, which yeah. I assimilate automatically. So there's no way I'm ever going to live up to his standards. And then my standards have to be even higher than that in order to impress him. So... Yeah, it, but now, it was fun. So now, though, you're a fully uh, realized human being. I'm feeling realized. Self-actualized. You know, self-actualized. Well, it's always a, it's a work in progress. progress. Uh, but, you have a happy marriage with a great yeah, guy. And I and I feel, you have a great book. Yeah, and I feel sto- like I've walked through the whole daddy fame thing. You know, I, I really wanted to walk through the fire of it and really own it all. So that being done with this book, I really feel like. Yeah, I'm done with it. I've told my story. I know who I am. Yes, I'm related to him. Yes, he's affected me on myriad of levels. But I'm I'm a separate person. And now I really get to be separate because I can literally put this down and walk away from it and now be this individual. Yes, that is a big deal. It's huge. I, You know, it's all through the book, that whole coming of age, that whole finding yourself. It's yeah. such a great story. Thank you. Anyway, I wish we had two more hours to talk about it because I could talk about it. Well, that it. way people will read the book Yeah, so there's, let, let them leave their stuff. And it's so well written, honest to God. It's Thank just you. My wife and I said the same thing. Thank you. Such a breezy read. It's so great. Anyway, so highly recommend A Carlin Home Companion. Uh, go pick it up. It's available with all books are sold everywhere. I'm they are everywhere. This. They are sold everywhere. Everywhere. All right. Thank you very much, Kelly. <laughs> Thanks, Jimmy. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.